0: we this morning are going to continue in our study of the gospel according to john and we are going to be in chapter 12 this morning i just want to remind us that we are skipping over some passages uh, at this point, because they are ones that we studied last springtime at Easter time, as far as Palm Sunday and the uh, you know the triumphant entry and all of that, and, uh, and and many of the things that took place during the Passion Week of Christ. So we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit this morning to chapter twelve, uh, verses twenty uh, through thirty-six. The light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. I am just amazed continually how deep and rich the word of God is and how it is that I could spend a whole week preparing a sermon over this particular text and just this morning see that there's some things that I left out that are important. (laughs) I mean, it's just... I don't know about you, but I'm just amazed over and over and over again with the Word of God in the Bible, the things that, that as you read, that you're reminded of things that, that you knew before but you haven't really thought about in a while, uh, but the more you read it, the deeper it seems to grow, and it just it's just, it just continues to amaze me, and, uh, and I hope you have the same uh, perspective on things as i do one of the things that's unique about the gospel according to john compared to the other gospels is so much of the volume of this book is committed to passion week a very large percentage of it is the others are more spread out throughout the whole whole ministry of jesus that we see john focusing a very great deal and a lot of effort on the particular details of the things that took place in the Passion Week. And so he's revealed to us a number of things that we don't find in the other Gospels. We are told that... uh, and we know this from other passages and that was that even though the, you know, the high holy days were for the Jewish people that, and, and the Jews would come to, to Galilee and we've seen Jesus and the disciples do that repetitively ever since we began to study the gospel of John, that every feast that they had that Jesus was there in Jerusalem out of necessity and not only out of necessity but out of desire and passion on his part. All of these things that are taking place during Passion Week are things that are taking place during the Feast of the Passover. So Jesus is there once again. One of the interesting things about this text is that uh, we've seen such resistance from so many of the Jewish people, in particular the Jewish leadership, in particular the Jewish religious leadership, Taking a very stiff and staunch stand against Jesus. We've seen that happen over and over and over again. One of the things that we really should take notice of in this particular text is this. Is that there were actually people there in Jerusalem that were celebrating the feast who were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Greeks perhaps. And there are some that are there, and they have questions for Jesus. Let me ask you something: Do you have any questions for Jesus? You have any questions sitting there on the back burner that once you are, you know, you cross into heaven and you're there, and you're given the opportunity that maybe you're going to ask him a few things. Well, I think maybe we think that. I'm not too sure that's how exactly how things are going to take place. I would imagine that we, when we come into the presence of Jesus, we're going to be in such awe that our tongue will be stuck to the roof of our mouth. <laughs> You know, that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, one of the things, again, that we need to glean from this is these, these were people who were either Greeks or it could be translated as just Gentiles. So they were non-Jewish people. but They were practicing the religion of Judaism. They were pro- proselytes. And they are hoping to speak to Jesus. One of the interesting things is this is they didn't go directly to Jesus. They went to one of his disciples, Philip. Now you may not realize this, but Philip is actually a Greek name. So I mean you can understand why maybe these Greek probably people knew that he was Greek and maybe that was they saw that kind of as an inroad to get in to have an audience to have a conversation with jesus himself so they go to andrew and just remember andrew was uh not andrew i'm talking about philip i'm sorry (laughs) philip philipos is a greek name but they go to andrew who is peter's brother by the way and he was one of the very first apostles that was called by jesus Uh, but it's interesting that they don't go directly to jesus now now, we can imagine, and I mean, there were throngs of people that were gathered around Jesus constantly wherever he went. And so we can imagine that having an audience, a conversation directly with Jesus was probably not the easiest thing in the world to accomplish. Everybody wanted to talk to Jesus, probably. So it appears as though there was kind of a method that, that existed whereby people would go to the apostles first, and then they would bring the names of those people before Christ himself. So they acted, the apostles acted kind of as intermediaries between the people and Jesus. And we can understand that, you know, even he is, though he's Christ the Lord, that he, he, there wasn't enough time in the day for him to have a conversation with everyone that wanted to have a conversation with him. So I would imagine the normal thing or the kind of the accepted protocol was for people to first go to the apostles and the apostles then would go and and carry their name to, to Jesus. And obviously Jesus couldn't speak to absolutely everyone, but I would imagine that he spoke to everyone that was humanly conceivably possible for him to do. There's a sense in which we have an e- intermediary even now and that is the Holy Spirit that when we pray to God that our prayers are conveyed into the holy throne room of God through the Holy Spirit even now that's true. But at the same time I would say this that there is a sense in which there are no intermediaries between us and Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells us and serves as our spokesperson. But even the Holy Spirit doesn't really stand between us and Christ. That should be awe-inspiring for every one of us. I mean, it should really take our breath away to understand that when we speak, that when we pray, those very words that come from our mouth, fall upon his ears and he wishes for us to do that I know there are people that are very great prayer warriors who spend a good deal of time in prayer there have been saints through the generations who have spent literally hours every single day on their knees before the throne of grace I know that's not most of us most of us, at best, go in spurts. I mean, let's be honest. We'll have times when we are really prayerful, and then we seem to kind of drift away and not pray much at all. Sometimes for very lengthy times until Christ once again somehow manages to get our attention to bring us back to where we need to be. We were talking about this in our Ephesians study early on, and that is, this: is can you imagine what Paul's prayer list was like and how many hours a day the Apostle Paul would spend in prayer just to cover all the people that he wanted to pray for? Martin Luther said one time that if he didn't pray for three hours at the beginning of every day, then he felt like he accomplished absolutely nothing. How many people in this room here have ever spent anywhere close to three hours in prayer in one standing? Well, ever in their whole lifetime. But one of the things I just want to remind you of this morning is that through this Holy Spirit, we have direct access to Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. That the only thing the Holy Spirit does is convey our words to him. He hears everything that you say. He knows everything that you think. He feels everything that you feel. We have an unbelievable connection with God Almighty through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not something I think that we often give that much thought about. Now, we don't know exactly, precisely what the questions of these men happen to be, and I'm just assuming men, because remember this, that only men were allowed in some places in the temple, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I would imagine that we can speculate on what the questions happen to be by what Jesus says. (laughs) It could have been something like, well, when is the hour that you're actually coming? Because Jesus says this in his response. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All of human history, even though many humans living in those days didn't realize it, all of human history has been leading up to this point in time. From the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden. From the creation of Adam and Eve, it's been leading up to this particular moment in time. And a single act on God's part will change forever the course of human history. The Son of God, who is also the Son of Man, was about to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus here likens himself to a seed or a grain, a wheat, wheat grain, seeds. That falls to the earth and apparently dies. But in its place, a plant springs to life and grows and becomes fruitful, eventually bearing seeds of its own. A likening of what is taking place. As the kingdom of God comes in all of its glory into the world of man. Now, being abolished, uh, being abolished, being a biologist, <laughs> I know a little bit about seeds. We uh, we understand this: that when seeds are introduced to this soil, they don't actually die. The wheat, the wheat that Jesus spoke, no, it doesn't actually, didn't actually die but it became something entirely different than anyone would have expected unless they knew what wheat seeds do. Every seed in it has a tiny plant embryo that when exposed to the right conditions will grow into a plant that will then in turn produce seeds of its own. Understand this is a picture of The kingdom of God. There's a sense in which we are those seeds that have been planted. And I would imagine that you're growing in Christ, just like, in a sense, plants grow from seeds. That your knowledge and your understanding and your application of what you know and what you've learned is ever growing. And we understand that that growth in us, let me say this, will never end will grow in life and will continue to grow in life but let me just say this that we will even more than that we will grow in eternity and that's just something we can't even begin to imagine (laughs) in other words as we enter heaven we won't be stagnated it's not that we will know everything and Uh, You know, be at the end of our learning curve that in a sense that we're just beginning our learning curve. And we're going to be learning and growing for all of eternity. Never an end to it. The more that we know, the more we will understand. There is to know. But for a seed to produce a plant, it must in fact be introduced to the soil. Seeds sitting in a bag on a shelf or in a package on a shelf will eventually degrade and, 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 and not be fit for growing anything, right? Seeds must be planted. They must be introduced to the soil. That's a picture of Christ. For Jesus to accomplish what he came to do, he must first die and enter into the grave and then spring to life once again. Do you understand that Jesus is using this simple example of common things that the everyday person knew to paint a picture of what was going to happen with him? At the end of this very week, there's a sense in which you, as a believer, are a seed of Christ. And as you grow, the impact that you have on other people will grow also. One of the strange things about it is his enemies will really believe that that in in, in killing Jesus, which is their intention, we know that's very clear at this point. Their desire is not to just shut Jesus up, not to just put him away and silence him. Their desire, their passion is to kill him. And when he dies, they will believe that they've defeated him. But reality is this. There's a sense in which, in killing Jesus, they were actually doing him a service. There's a sense in which, in killing Jesus, they were actively doing service that you and I would benefit from. Jesus uses agricultural pictures all the time in his in his parables, you think about the parable of the sower and you think about uh, the parable where the seeds fell on the, uh, the good soil and produced grain. And the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the tares among the wheat. You know, we need to understand that this was common language. These were pictures that everyone in Old Testament Israel would have been familiar with because it was very much an agriculturally oriented culture. In verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus says this. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me where I am, there my servant will be also. how do we apply the things that this uh, chapter reveals to us well one of those very clearly is this is just as jesus was very willing to self-sacrifice self-sacrifice should be something that characterizes our own lives It's so easy for people, and this culture out there, this woke culture out there, is doing this. It is encouraging people to believe that they are the center of absolutely everything. That in each of their individual eyes, they are the most important person that has ever lived. And there is an appeal, appealing aspect to that, right? But what is it appealing to? It's appealing to the fallen human nature. It is not the picture that is painted by Scripture for believers. Believers are called to die more and more unto themselves and follow Jesus Christ more closely, more and more and more. We are his children. We are his servants. Unfortunately, sometimes you'll find people in the church who still believe that it's all about me. I just want to tell you this morning, it may crush your little bubble or whatever, but it just flat is not all about you. As a matter of fact, you're only a little, teeny, itsy-bitsy part of the picture. But let me say this. You are an extremely important part of that picture. Without you, that picture would fall apart completely. But being a Christian does not mean inactivity. It actually means action. Not only professing faith... But practicing faith. By serving him in whatever capacity he calls us to serve him in. It says in chapter 12 verse 26. If anyone serves me the father will honor him. To be a Christian means to be a servant. Most of you know that I grew up kind of in the church. We were some of those people who would go in spurts. You know, maybe for a whole year we would go, and, you know, then for the next two years we wouldn't go at all. Well, he'd wind up back there again sometime later and, you know, that sort of thing. And and one of the peculiar things uh, in those days, there was a large percentage of people who went to Sunday school and after church or after Sunday school, they would go home. They didn't go to the worship service. I can tell you that I went to church a lot when I was a kid for Sunday school, but I, I, I can only remember like two times I was ever in the Sunday morning worship service. And that was pretty common in the circle that I, uh, of the churches that I was in, that it, you know, Sunday school was almost overemphasized. It, it was overemphasized at the expense of worship. It's like if you have something, a choice to make, whether to go to Sunday school or go to worship, then you go to Sunday school because Sunday school is where you learn and you grow and this, that, and the other, and the worship aspect to it is kind of on a secondary level. But you understand, my friends, that is exactly the opposite of what things ought to look like. That worship ought to be the most important thing that we do. It's the center of everything. And everything else flows forth from it. That our lives should be characterized by worship, not on Sunday morning only, but certainly on Sunday morning for sure. That our lives should be characterized by constant and continued worship of God the Son and God the Holy Father and God the Holy Spirit Continually, But I was a kid who grew up wondering, looking for those people that, that obviously lived a life that testified very clearly and very powerfully as to what they believed. And let me tell you, there were some people that had some degree of influence on me as a young man. I can remember a Sunday school teacher I had one time who reached out beyond just Sunday morning to me. And he had an impact upon me. And I went for a good bit of my adult life. I was in my 30s. When I became a believer, because during my college years, I completely turned away from all of it, I, you know. But let me tell you what made one of the biggest differences for me. Because what I would have told you is that when I grew up in the church, I felt like I was surrounded by a bunch of hypocrites. Hypocrites. I mean, there were exceptions, but not many. Because I also went to school with a lot of the people that I went to church with. And I saw how they were at school. And these weren't just kids, they were teachers. I saw a big disconnect between a profession of faith in Christ and actually living for Christ. In a way that made a difference in your own life, but even more a difference in the lives of other people around you. Then Lori came to faith in Christ early on in our marriage, and for a time I continued to resist it. Matter of fact, the first time she told me that she wanted to go back to church, I was shocked, I was disappointed. And what I said to her is, you can do that if you want to, but you need to understand something. I will never, ever be a part of that. And who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? Humor. But let me tell you, my coming to faith was not just about going to church. It was looking and seeing people whose lives were very much changed and affected and focused on this Jesus business. One of the first times I went to church with Lori, i wasn't a believer at that point i was and i had been reading the bible for some months before that in secret even though she knew it i didn't know she knew it she always knows everything so i learned a long time ago to try to not keep anything from her but i was reading the bible and let me tell you i found the bible to be very different than the way i pictured it to be it actually made sense to me some of it didn't necessarily but most of it really did But when I finally decided that I wasn't going to learn what I needed to on my own, I was going to have to break down and admit I was wrong and go to church. And so I did. And one of the things that happened to me that day was this. I found that person who obviously was very committed to his faith. He was willing to make huge sacrifices that I knew most people would not be willing to make for one reason. Because he loved Jesus and he wanted other people to love Jesus. His name was Alan Lee. He was a missionary to Uganda through World Harvest Mission. And he was raising uh, support and also trying to recruit people to go to Uganda that summer to work on a construction project, to build houses for missionaries to live in in a remote region of Uganda so they could evangelize the surrounding area. But what I saw in this man was someone who was willing to give up all of those things that people in this world so greatly treasure safety for him safety for his family his family went with him to this god-forsaken place all for the good of black people in africa that he didn't even know i concluded that he was either a sadist a lunatic or someone who knew someone that I just flat did not know. It was interesting because six months later, I was riding, you know, in a little trailer pulled behind a tractor, down a dusty road in Uganda, sitting by Alan Lee. And I was able to tell him what an impact and what a change it had brought upon me. God is calling all of us to mission. It may not be in Bunda Uganda may not be in china it may be may not even be in montana or alaska it may be very well or very well may be in dun in my We are called to witness to the masses around us. There's a hymn that's sung, and I know it because I was raised in a Baptist church. It's not in the, hymn, the Trinity hymnal that we use here, the title of which is Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. I'm not so sure that we shouldn't sing that on somewhat of a regular basis here to remind us of what our calling is. And it's always, in some sense, to go. may not be going very far. It may be going somewhere within your own household. Or going somewhere in your neighborhood. Or growing, going somewhere in the community around you. Or in some cases it may mean packing up your house and moving somewhere else. Maybe we don't sing that hymn because we're not too sure that we'd be faithful. In doing it. <laughs> There's another thing out there that's bothersome to me, and that is this retirement mentality that people have acquired. That you work for so much of your life, and then you retire, and you know, then from that point on, your life is your own to do whatever you want to do. To go to all those places you always wanted to go. To do the things that you've always wanted to do that you were not able to do while you were working. I don't want to close without getting into verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Remember last week we talked about how God is an emotional God, that we are emotional creatures because we are made in God's image. That Jesus wept and therefore it's okay for us to do it. Jesus was fearful, he was afraid, now my soul is troubled. Sometimes I think we believe in this glorious Christian living where we are never troubled and and this, that, and the other. And let me just tell you, that does not actually exist anywhere. Anybody that believes it and thinks they have it is sadly mistaken. We should all be able to echo that at times in our life. My soul is troubled. Because of the things I see around me, but even more so, my soul is troubled because of the things I still see within me. I think sadly, sometimes people believe that because Jesus was not only human, he was also God. That his death somehow wasn't like what we would experience. But let me just tell you this this morning. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus endured exactly what you would endure if you died by being crucified. And even more. Because the sin burden that was laid upon him was far more than your sin burden. It was a sin burden of every person who would ever believe in him and trust in him for their salvation. That is the burden that he is going to the cross bearing. Jesus knew better than anyone else what his last days on earth would involve, and it troubled him greatly. I think one of the things that bothered him more than anything else is this, is knowing that his father would be the one that would inflict the punishment on him ultimately. You know, I can remember my father saying this all the time, and I never believed it was true. When he punished me, it was this, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. I never believed it, and I still don't believe it. <laughs> but you understand that it really is true when it comes to Christ. That your hurts, your griefs, your brokenness, and whatever have hurt and grieved him more than even you. I could keep going on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, when I started working on this sermon this week, I'm thinking, what am I going to preach from this? As you study it and you read it over and over and over again, it's just more and more and more. As I'm going through here this morning, I "I don't even remember reading that this week. Look at that. Look at all the jewels that are right there, and you passed right over it. Most people understand this. I could spend the rest of my lifetime doing nothing but preaching through John. I just could. But I just want to encourage us in this this morning maybe i'll pick up on some of this stuff le- next week but be in the word because God speaks to us in his word be about your father's business and your father's business isn't just coming to church on Sunday morning and spending the whole rest of the week as if you hadn't done that. And coming back, we are called just like Christ. This, this, this is the greatest service that anyone ever did for people. And just as Christ served, we are called to serve as well. I'm tired of hearing people say, well, I'm not very good at doing that. Or I just don't feel called to do that. Let me tell you, we can come up with all kinds of reasons, logical reasons, reasonable reasons we think, and etc. not to be obedient to Christ. We're too busy. I'll do that some other time. I just don't have the time right now. But where would you and I be if Christ had that attitude? Seriously. I don't know about you, but... uh, Sometimes I think it would be a lot easier to believe all this stuff if God would just speak to me directly one time if I heard that voice speaking out of the darkness or down from the sky. But I want to challenge us with the idea that God continues to speak to us today and he primarily does that through his written word. We need to be people that are about our Father's business. And let me tell you, one of the biggest businesses of our Father is to be in His Word. And I've done a lot of reading of Scripture in my day. And some of that I did was an unbeliever. I started reading the Bible before I became a believer. I would read the whole Bible all the way through before I became a believer. I don't know about you, but I can tell you this this morning. I have never, I have never one time ever read a verse or read a paragraph or read a chapter or read a whole book of the Bible without walking away and understanding that God has just spoken to me. So don't let anybody tell you that God doesn't speak anymore that Jesus is silent, because that just is not true that's a lie from the pit of hell try me read it don't be surprised at what happens you might wind up in Uganda who knows Be encouraged, be strong in your faith, walk the line, serve, and worship, but don't do either without loving and caring. like to